Welcome, everybody, uh, to the first event of the new writing series this quarter. Uh, we have two readers today. Uh, this quarter, um, four out of our five events will have uh, double readers, so um, I guess that's the theme. Uh, and uh, we're very excited to have this pair today. Um, and we're excited as well. Uh, Mandy, MFA student, is going to introduce both. So. Um, Mandy, can you please come up here and, and introduce? <laughs> okay. Can you hear me? Okay. I began my relationship with the Shiro Phenom Melissa Chadburn on Twitter. Apparently, she loves my outfit very much. Not only a survivor, but an ameliorator of the age of digital poetics, Chadburn is living technologically wired proof that genius writing can, can be produced in 140 characters or less. Do you ever realize any place with best in the title is never the best, she recently noted? Only when I'm in heels, otherwise I think we're eye level, she verses on my screen. In a more recent tweet, I learned that on January 10th at 8.17 a.m., Chadburn made the treadmill her bitch. <laughs> a former law student, MFA grad, and prolific writer of a multitude of genres, Chadburn's work has appeared, or will soon appear, in Guernica, Pink Magazine, Word Riot, Volume 1 Brooklyn, Slake, Salon, and the Northville Review. A regular contributor at The Nervous Breakdown and The Rumpus, Chadburn is a true artist in the virtual world, a gorgeous presence making the internet a consistently more stimulating, scintillating place. In a recent review of Django Unchained, Chadburn evoked the great Toni Morrison in her message of what it means to be both a writer and a person. When I think of my duty as a writer, I'm reminded of Toni Morrison's Nobel lecture. She tells the story of an older blind woman who was said to be clairvoyant. Some kids come up and challenge her. They have a bird in their hands. They ask the woman if the bird is dead or alive. It's a trick. If she says the bird is alive, they will kill it. If she says it's dead, they will keep it alive. After a long pause, she simply says, I don't know, but it's in your hands. A lover and a fighter, a union rep, a social arsonist, a writer, a lesbian of color, smart, edgy, and fun, I present for your viewing and listening pleasure, the great Melissa Chadburn. <laughs> Wow, I, that was awesome. Hi. Um, so we all have had different people that have curated our love for storytelling. And for me, it's um, 
my Lola, who often walked around looking like a disgruntled Pekingese without her teeth in. And um, in her honor, I thought I would tell this first story um, uh, the way she would tell stories, um, being that English was her second language. So I'll just give it to you by rote. I'm a memory. <laughs> you know more people jack off than pick their nose while driving. Allie was running a flattened hanger through the side of a car window. It was a silver Volvo. It was dark. I held the flashlight pointed at the window but flashed at Allie's face momentarily. He was concentrating. Pause. Blew out air to swish his brown curly bangs out of his eyes. Shut up, you don't know that. Yeah, man. I saw it all the time when I was riding my dad's truck. Allie's dad was really Italian. It was hard for me to picture him driving a truck or doing anything at all other than saying, here, eat this. It's good for you. As he slipped a clove of garlic in my mouth and then held me close to slow dance to no music at all. Gross. Guys are so nasty. You're almost there. I know. Shut up. What? 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 What do you know? That you're almost there or the guys are nasty? The curved portion of the hanger was perched right below the door handle. He gently tugged up and as if on cue, the lock came unhinged. Allie winked. Both. He opened the back seat door. We slid in. The seats were creamy gray leather. The car smelled clean. Not exactly new, but like the owner took really good care of it. Like the owner never ate fast food in it or anything. There was no paper, no mess. Just a small indentation on the back seat floor where it looked like a briefcase usually sat. The truth is, the indentation was from a case that held 12-step literature. The owner of the car was in a 12-step program for nicotine. Nicotine Anonymous. See, her car was a real trigger for her. She had so many memories of driving around, singing at the top of her lungs, a cigarette dangling between her fingers. Now when she drove around, she listened to pre-recorded med meditations on audibles. Allie pulled two camel filters out of his flannel shirt pocket. I lit his, he lit mine. Oh, man. That first inhale. To see the smoke swirling around inside. It was so nice. I remember when they first changed the smoking laws in California so you could no longer smoke inside, I thought I could hear my heart break. And then I traveled to other places. Places where you could get perfectly trashy artery-clogging meals. Well, that was it. Allie and I took matters into our own hands. There was a small ledge that went from the back seat to the rear window and it had little do stuffed dogs with bouncy heads and some Kleenex and little round pillows. I think the owner of this car is Filipino. Why do you think that? I don't know, Kleenex? My grandmother loved paper products but she always liked to hide it with cutesy things. She had one of those Barbie dolls that billowed over the extra roll of toilet paper. It's important to hide the toilet paper. <laughs> toilet paper is dirty and evil. My grandmother was really good at filling me with fear. She once explained that if you ate in bed, roaches would come while you were sleeping and crawl into your ear canal. From that point on, any time I had an earache, I regretted that one sip of chicken soup I had when I stayed in from school. I could see it now the orange squishy squares swimming around in the silver ladle. Distracted by Judge Wapner's stern sentencing, I missed my mouth and the sodium juice slipped onto the comforter. I panicked. I paced the bowl on the side table and ran to the bathroom for cleaning supplies. 
there was only Ajax and a tabo. A tabo is a small bowl or oftentimes a big gulp slurpee cup that Filipinos use to wash after number two. It's not enough just to wipe. You need to do a full below-the-waist bath, and failure to do so could cause death, or worse, you could be considered in possession of loose morals. <laughs> so I took the tabo and the Ajax and went to clean the comforter. To my dismay, it started to wear thin. The stuffing came out. I panicked. There's only one excuse in my family. Sickness. The only way you could be recused from church or school is if you were sick, which is why I was feigning illness on that particular day. Sometimes when I pretended I'd sick, I'd make fake vomit out of bits of bread and corn, whatever was left in the rice cooker that day. And I'd leave a little, just a little, so my Lola would know I wasn't regular sick, but Miss Church sick. That was it. I'd say I got sick on the comforter and had to put it in the washer and dryer, and any damage done would be a result of the washer and dryer, not me. See? I was slick even then. It was the fear drug working for me. It's where I go in a pinch. Ali pointed to a small house with a white cracked mildew door and said, has that place always been there? I tried to picture the inside. What happened behind that door? I could see the carpeting. It was a thick medley of blues. The knitted loops clumped together in places where there were spills. I could see one of those giant floor-sized model televisions with the scrolling wooden doors. I could see the rabbit ears on top extended with hangers, a microwave. I could smell the dirty diaper raid, cigarette smoke smells. I could even see the bed, a mattress, no sheets. Not the silky blue kind with white flowers, but more cloth-like with gray and white stripes. And it sat on a metal frame that folded in half and had wheels attached to it. I called it a cot. I wanted to go in. I wanted to give up. I so badly wanted my insides to match my outsides. Hungry man dinners in front of a black and white television that you constantly have to recalibrate to get a reception, that's my insides. I don't know, I told Allie. I entered foster care when I was 15. I was terrified the first time I went into a group home. At least at home, I could have complained about too loud sex or fighting or someone cutting themselves. At this place, you could pull back the sheets and find a head-sized blood stain, which is exactly what happened to me. The first time I went to a group home, I pulled back the sheets and found a head-sized blood stain. My roommate sat in the corner, stabbing at her skins with a staple. I was forced to say the serenity prayer with a fifi in my mouth. For those of you not classy enough to know what a fifi is, it's a thing that guys use to masturbate with sort of working man's pocket pussy. It was in foster care that I first developed the ache. The don't get too attached, you can't eat, fuck your way out of it ache. I've dedicated my whole life to remedying that ache. Some of the things I've done, people have called attention-seeking in order to, self and to rid myself of the ache. My former caseworkers would say, oh, she's just attention-seeking. But what are they really saying? They want to know if it's a true emergency or not. Attention seeker has become equated with time waster. We'd rather be an ant than a wounded macaw calling attention to ourselves. But yet we were actually everywhere truly hurting ourselves. And perhaps that's how suicide bombers are born. Maybe it's that first fetal kick, that first stretch or yawn, the first time our skin touches air. For some of us acres, our baby cheeks were met with remnants of newspapers and trash cans, or cold slaps in foster care, 
or teenage doting, or alcohol-soaked rags that beget alcohol-drenched nightmares. For me, the only way to soothe the ache is to break into cars and to smoke in them. Thanks. So, so that was a short story that was, uh, that was published in Guernica. And um, this is a, a, an, a piece, an excerpt of a memoir that was published in Slake. Uh, I think the only thing that you need to know is that in Westwood Village, there, there's a park. And at the park, there's this slide that um, looks like a giant elephant skull. And so um, I, it, it's entitled Elephant Skull. And so and this, this is, takes place at the park. On the day that Brenna was going to get put on, there was so much buzz, we sat around just waiting for night to come. If a guy wanted to get put on, he'd just get jumped in. But if a girl wanted to get put on, it was a different story. The guys would run a train on her. Except for me. I didn't have to get put on. Because of B, I got a pass. All I had to do was watch and be the counter. Before it was Brenna's turn, a guy called Shallow got jumped in. I sat in the vacant skull of the elephant slide, my Doc Martens propped against the slope of the trunk, while the guys circled each other on the ground down below. Shallow, a thin blonde boy, stood in the middle of the circle posturing, back hunched, elbows up. His eyes darted around the circle. He hopped around, fists up by his cheeks. The guys forming the circle looked like boys imitating gorillas, imitating vultures, and then suddenly the first blow came from behind. Trax did it. Trax was a stout kid with muscles. He had a list that gave him a tinge of innocence. That innocence was shifted by his deep vodka rasp. And once the hitting started, I began counting out loud. One, two, three. Smoking and counting, feigning disinterest. Shallow had no chance. The guys, at least ten, were all running in close, socking him at once. He looked at me. His eyes asked for mercy. I started to speed up my counting. Five, six, seven. He lifted his arms to his face, curved his body into the shape of a C. When I got to 30, they stopped. The storm died down. The punches turned into hugs. Shallow lay slumped on the ground. His nose and eyes, the mushiest parts of him. Wet gobs of blood. One eye already swollen half shut. Aw, oh, man, I think you broke my nose. They always said that. Most often, it wasn't broken. And that's how the guys got into whatever silly thing we were calling ourselves that day. The rabid bundle of guys that were jumping shallow in were ready to celebrate, ready to be bros. They poured beers on each other and hugged. Then Brenna came forward and walked toward the slide. She was drunk. She stumbled on a rock. I searched her face for a sign that she might want to change her mind. I wanted her to want to change her mind. But when she looked up, she only seemed more determined. She straightened her dress. She smoothed over her sharp black bob. The clot of guys that were a circle of fury just moments ago started to act modest. They passed around a bottle, drank, poured a little on the ground for my brother, who was in jail then. Some of them formed a line, and I walked over to a bench. I sat on a bench facing the swings. Once Brenna reached the elephant, she turned around facing me. She put her hands on the sides behind her and propped herself up backward like a kid hopping onto a kitchen counter. 
only her feet slept, slipped and she fell off balance. She looked drunk. She fell on the ground and the back of her head banged against the sculpture. A couple guys rushed to help her, prop her up. Yeah, sure, they're gonna help her and then they're gonna fuck her, I thought. I hated her then. Something about her big eyes and her clumsiness made me hate her. I left my bench and went to the swings. I didn't wear socks and I could feel the sand pass through the eyelets in my shoes. I looked over occasionally and saw the line form. The sand was swifting between my toes and from where I was sitting I could make out little things and fill in the blanks. Shallow went first. When he left the elephant, Viper unbuckled his belt. He didn't have to bother because his pants were so big they fell off his flat hips. Some guy walked forward with their some guys walked forward with their cocks hanging out the slit in front. Tracks was next in line. He warmed himself up, spit on his hand, stroked himself. He wanted to appear big. He joked awkwardly while he was waiting in line with the other guys. From my spot on the swing, I'd imagine them pulling Brenna closer. Brenna, the paper girl, tiny bones. They'd tear a hole in the crotch of her fishnets and take her from there. Brenna probably looked at the ceiling of the hollowed-out skull of the elephant. Maybe she was counting with me at that moment. One, two, three. It didn't stop at 30. I looked at the moon. I tried to swing toward it, curling my feet underneath me and then shooting my legs forward, keeping my toes pointed. I wanted to launch myself higher and higher. I remembered how my brother always jumped from the swing to the ground when we got to the highest point. That was him, fearless. I got so high I was afraid the chains from the swing would wrap around the pole. That's when I brought my feet back to the ground. I stopped the swing and broke the dream. Thank you. Margaret Ronda, Jennifer Scapitone, Barrett Watton, and of course, the magnificent Hilary Gravendike. A disability and illness studies scholar, environmentalist, activist, poet, multimodal artist, teacher, Gravendike released her first full-length book of poems, Harm, in 2011, published by Omnidon Press. Harm is a meditation on the relationship between bodies and the landscape that they inhabit. Harm offers a distinctive and bombastic voice and a growing perspective for the disability illness communities. The idea that the cure must simply be another form of bodily harm. In the seven strings of memory, she notes, pain's absence like a footprint in the snow. But the iron had eaten into my flesh. There was nothing, nothing to record. My strangeness, the out-of-bodiness of the pain-free existence for a person with chronic pain. Theft of subjecti- theft, theft of subjectivity, the healing of pain sometimes alive. Recent winner of the Lana Turner Poetry Prize, Gavin Dyke's poetry has appeared in journals such as the American Letters and Commentary, the Wellington Review, the Colorado Review, the Eleventh Muse, the Fourteen Hills, 
Mary, 1913, The Journal of Form, Octopus Magazine, Harper and Skye, and other venues. She is currently working on the Holloway Anthology, 30 Years of Poetry at Berkeley with Lindsay Gideon, and a critical book, Chronic Poetics, that explores intersubjectivity and embodiment in the poetic works of Mamie Drusenberg, Teresa Hackson-Shaw, George Aubin, and Larry Eisner. Please welcome the magnificent and talented, very eloquent, <laughs> Hilary Gravendike. Thank you for that introduction. It was so nice and flattering. Um, and, uh, and such a good uh, summary of what my, what my book's trying to do and what I'm trying to do. So thank you for that careful reading, Mandy. Um, I brought a couple of things I thought I'd read a little bit from my book, um, which, as Mandy said, is about subjectivity, illness, cure, um, embodiment. And it, it came in the wake of um, receiving a double lung transplant. So it's a lot about... Um, hospitalizations, about what it means to be a body in the world uh, when your body is transformed and penetrated in a way that seems totally unnatural and totally unbelievable. Um, so that's what that book's about. And in fact, I've spent the last three years or so being off and on pretty sick. So a lot of my poetry um, does take up issues of chronic illness. And so I'm going to read some from the book and then some newer work that came after the book. It covers some of the same themes, but from a little bit different perspective, as you'll see. So I'll start with harm. <clears throat> I'm going to read the first book of the poem, and I think I'll just just kind of give you a sampler of them, and then and then move on. This is the very first book in the collect, or the first poem in the collection. It's called Botanica. Creature of occasion, remember where you have been. Which leaves have teeth? Which leaves are shaped like a pair of lungs? The closed landscape glitters. My name is acutifolius, having sharp edges. Underside of each frond, like a powdery line of braille, air stuttering with leaves. There's a night inside the night inside my chest. Forest air cool as a plum's dark flesh. The hand goes black against the low green. I'm candicans, looking white or frosted, or sylvaticus, californicus. In the crowded wood, I see the several eyes go down, black air folds around low ferns. Asleep, I laid my hand on the tree until my skin turned to bark. This is assessment. Goes the day bleached of its figures, the creature of every failure skittering across the road. They found an error black with a white line, and decided to have it removed. A blank warren folded behind every one of their chests. Goes the day and the day's administration. Organs flat as mirrors, the hour a deflated body. This is also called Botanica. It's part of a series. Grass and flat whorls shows you bedding down in the wind. The rocks chalked with mineral lines, the monstrous plant life. Imagine a carriage wheel turning on sand, crest of every rise on fire, the aspen flicking its wrist. 
on the line of apprentice observers, a field of insistent grass, seeds loosed from the stalk. Above the smoke glass of the sky, there's atmosphere. Underneath you, a cache of white shells. All the small scents close in the air. Coyote mint, sage, dust, softly the dimmed hillside. I'm streaming away from you, the sound water makes when it runs through leaves. And I think because Mandy mentioned it, I'm going to read the seven sins of memory, which I normally don't read. It's um, seven very short fragments uh, that each have their own page. So here goes. The seven sins of memory. Pain's absence like a footprint in snow, but the iron had eaten into my flesh. There was nothing, nothing to record. Linen-thin scenes stacked like records. My forest becomes a set of angles, a murmuring that betrays its worry, kaleidoscope panther on the black mountain. Bright needle punched through the neck, a hissing. Someone brings in another chair. In the silent theater, a confusion. The blandness of the hour meets the pink dreaming riot. The equivalence of dreams. To enter the room, you must scrub in. Shifting hillside covered with crowns, everyone bedded down in the playroom. Regrets silver string binding the fingers together. That same music that terrifies the mind calms the blood. Don't leave me. Don't leave the room. How the sun turns over the body, returning light like a sweaty hand covering the face. Here, the atmosphere of a closed box. Ashy organ, breath of my breath. Lantern Canyon. The route within is familiar. Dedicated pilgrims prefer circuits. Only only sentiment dictates a frontier. So there is a way chapel of cell gray stars. There a nucleus of wet pebbles laid in moss. Twigs crossed in an arrow intently, absently, must, after all, mark. Your hand is a furrow pressing out a darkness, and in the stuttering breath, a portal. Nimbus cloud lung shuddering toward the gash of morning, remember. Pioneers slash only toward a territory they remember. The vein is an intimate thoroughfare. Still, nothing comes first. The heart expands in circles. The pioneer, the pilgrim, both gather at the core, one tearing out the bright veins, one tending their short light. Waiting. And believe me, when you're waiting for a transplant, waiting is a big part of your life. There's a lot of waiting. So, um, and there's a lot of people who wait with you and are just as anxious as you. So this is a poem for them. Spun sky, unhappy stairway, stark record of summer, bright, harrowing. But it wasn't the brink. It was an uneven surface, was a jumble of absences. 
They waited for me in the sycamore shade, violet current stuttering eye, watching me disappear by degrees. You pressed my shoulder, held it to the wheel, and I haven't even told you what I fear most, what's buried in the flesh. Selfish desire, I kept you like a secret, wanted what I could get. We built a boat from all this, set it adrift in the tar paper night, mended my skin with barbed wire, covered ourselves in refusal. I forced your hand into mine, though I knew you couldn't go where I had to go. I think I'll just read two more from the book and then move to the new work. Safekeeping. These were our secrets. Samples from a charred heart, beak ligament, sharp fist of serpentine. We traded our phosphorus and filament for a 10-pin lock and were comforted. We knew that the right chemicals could make anything glow, knew that our discoveries were too delicate for exposure and how distant, how troubling outside our rare cabinets. A little more protection and another specimen, clinging ring of iris, breath bottle, bone, or scab, it was dangerous, but it was ours for safekeeping. We wanted something coarser than blood to course through us, bee swarm and fiberglass, wanted to glitter and wound at the same time. And this last poem from the book is, is for my husband, Benjamin. It's called Apology with Bees in It. You packed a suitcase with bees, collected honey in the lining, the window open like a palm. You thought you knew what you were getting into, circumstantial organs and my voice splitting in two. I felt sorry for love. I felt sorry. Every exchange was letter pressed on my skin. Then someone made ornaments of affect. They were charms against protection. We asked for directions, which catacombs exited the street. Strangers pointed at every door the building in the shape of a jaw, your certainty, your domino heart. You lined your pockets with bees. You shoved your hand right in. So I'm going to try something very techy here. I didn't print these poems out. I have them on my iPad. But um, it's not very poety to do that, I don't think. But we'll do it anyway. All right. This, this poem is called Danger. One, two, three hours in the backyard of your heart. We spin across the grass as if across a frozen lake. It's whiter at the edges of a star or a flame. Ink glass and ginger avenues scattered with snow. A waltz is very much like a dream. Sounds are incidental in this version of events. Behind the walk, a wind shuffles the leaves like paper. You've lifted my chin to your face a thousand times. You've held my hand in the garden's dark corridors. You've silenced protest with a fierce glance. You've held my skirt while my skirt was on fire. This is called Forest Floors, and it's a poem for my friend and colleague, Claudia Rankin, who is also going through um, a serious illness right now. Folded inside the word is the wood. Tree totems, patch of earth, bird sound. 
Nothing is quieter than a wild place in our chests. The word for air in an animal language. The fur needles, fresher wick, pulling blood to the surface of the hour. Our betrayers grown into the scenery, taut against the skin. Some tithe with grasses, the pine cones piling up like drifts of snow. Some swim in the cold ocean, falling on rocks, picking kelp apart, dreaming of redwoods and gnats swarming over deep lakes. We'll all come to concluding phrases, full of river-washed stones, full of soft moss. Forever bound to our bodies, which falter, which spring up fern-laden groves, which flower and fail. Uh, this is named for me. <laughs> it's called Hillary, Hillary. <laughs> you creep through the air, a voice calling my name. In this dimmer winter where keels freeze to swells, I was lost in the delicacy of your warning at sea. Held myself against the roll of your tongue, the door open like a mouth and the air falling through more air, a hole in the light. You carry each pinprick of rain and lay me in fragments on the counterpane. You circle the room, a quieting crow. The wind slices absence into segments. The door slaps the side of the house, and I'm ankle deep in clouds. So this, like the poem I just read, um, I was thinking a lot about hearing things that aren't happening or being said, and about how often those have to do with hearing yourself being called to. So this is called, Sometimes When Alone I Hear My Name. Ghost ringtone and someone saying my letters, or claw hammer, or gentle, caller I thought I knew you, slipped through a heavy snow into a heavy sleep. Mossed belly, strewn hillside, earlobe. The bedroom crowded with stillness, the air full of names. The river was fastest near the banks. The boat drifted into a net of weeds. We laughed, but were shaking with cold. Window sash eyelids stopped against storms. Now on the soft carpet, I'm bound by rumors I tell myself. Algae twined around each wrist. From a rock thrush throat, the bellow of water. I might as well admit I've lost you a thousand times. Shelled spine along a sandbar, nest of brown hair and nettles. But you find me in every landscape, back curved against a bitter wind, grit in my hair, hand tracing the only name I hear. <clears throat> and this, this is untitled. There's a pocket in my dress filled with seeds. I'm flush with heat, with you, waiting for them to flower. Bent against eventualities, you've slumped into my bed again, hands stressing the distance between my body and yours. Make no promises, though I do it all the time. You return but pretend to be gone. Kiss me as though you were teaching me a lesson in restraint. It's an unpretty nightscape, starless and shadowed with creatures that move away from us. A tree in the path breaks the path in two. And this is the last one I'll read. 
It's called Your Ghost. Parted from the scene of old disasters, a magnet pulling one memory in two directions, the hand stealing the circles in a puddle, mind placed against the side of a stone. I guess we haven't offered up any new truths, turned your heart inside out for pennies, braided your hair into a soft basket, held nature's charms at arm's length, wondering who sleeps where at night, where does the imprint of your body go when you rise? Your ghost spilling like a lake into the hall, flash flood of absence and promise, the sight of every angled enmity, a kiss on the brow, the slope, the axis, three points in a bucket of lines. I know these roads by heart and all the ways back in. An arrow strung up like a party favor points the way. I want to hear your voice at the bottom of the stairs. I want to get drunk, hit rock bottom, kill something small. I want to break every heart in the room. Your apparition curled around my neck like an animal made from clouds. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, we were wondering if the two of you might step up here for a second and answer some questions. Uh, and I was wondering if some of you might have some questions for readers. Uh, so, well, and I hope you're not too cold. Next time, <laughs> bring lots of gear. About embodiment, yeah. about, yeah. Well, my experience, I mean, I think I used to talk about embodiment and illness differently before my transplant, and I have to say that that particular experience, which is about having part of your body removed from you, um, begins to make you think about where embodiment really resides if it, if it doesn't literally reside in your body, which is a, is a weird thing to think about. So um, the, the sort of presence of absence for me became a huge thing that I was trying to work through. How could, how could the seat of so much of my anxiety be my lungs, which were gone? Um, and so I think that's how I started thinking about it, and, and, and then it sort of ends up overflowing into other ways I think about my body, about things that are removed or passed or have happened but no longer happen. So absence, I mean, you're right. Absence is a huge part of what I'm trying to figure out in terms of what that has to do with the very physical. Thank you for that question, Michael. Loose Morals is the title, and it can be found on Guernica online. Oh, um, maybe uh, I would say about two years ago. Do you have an idea how long it took you to write it? Well, uh, I, yeah, I don't. <laughs> it took my whole life, and it took uh, sitting down for 
uh, three hours. <laughs> Can I ask, uh, did you memorize it as a sort of, uh, uh, on purpose or as, a, as an accident, or how did, how did it, did you do a lot of sort of storytelling performance things, or? Yeah. Yeah, I um I I did intentionally memorize it. I did memorize it as a tribute. Um, you know, like I mentioned, I my my grandmother always told stories all the time sitting around whenever we had a family gathering and um and so I think I I did do it as a tribute, but I but I but I cheated because I, you know, had written it already and I memorized <laughs> it and I I copied it down five times until it stuck. So <laughs> It's so great to hear it spoken that way. I feel like it's so different than what I'm used to hearing in a fiction reading. Yeah, and well, I'm always in awe of poets, you know, memorize, a lot of poets I know memorize their work, and I'm like, God, this is hard. This is not <laughs> <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Do you want to take it? Or? Well, we can both take yeah. it. But, okay. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, I mean, I think uh, uh, as, a, as a reader, you know, I, I, I can either read um, to escape for pleasure or I could read to get closer to people. And I feel that in sharing my pain, it's a way for me to become closer with people. And, and so I think that's, that's why I choose to go that route. Yeah, I agree. And also, for me, sharing it is a way of understanding it that I don't have access to without sharing it. Um, one of the challenges for me was a lot of my memory about the actual um, surgery I had was really fragmented and misty and in and out, in and out of consciousness. And so it was, it was a, a really exciting challenge for me to try to put together the, those kinds of fragments in a way that would still mean to an audience that hadn't experienced that, that wasn't just like a record of something totally solipsistic. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so I think in doing that, like, I got a better sense of what came out of that f for me, you know, as a person, how, I, how it changed me or how I felt about um, the whole experience. And I don't think I could have come to the same kind of relationship with my illness that's a productive relationship had I not been able to transform that material into something that was legible to people who hadn't had the same experience. I mean, that's like one of the great joys of writing, right, is to like give those experiences over and to take them in as a reader. <clears throat> Harm, um, this is more of a craft response, I guess, but when I was making the book, uh, I knew I wanted to call the book Harm, and that meant that I knew I needed to write a poem called Harm. <laughs> so, so I set about writing that poem very strategically and programmatically. I think in the end, it ended up being a really productive uh, writing experience for me, and I got to, to some ideas that I hadn't had elsewhere in the book. And, so, and maybe that's because you know, in knowing what the title was, I knew there was something I hadn't said yet that needed to be said. And, I, and I, I'm sure you noticed in the poem, I repeat that word harm kind of talismanically. I just keep saying the word harm. And, um, and it's because 
more than anything when any line in that poem, that word became extremely um, important and fraught for me, thinking about um, coming to harm versus, uh, like Mandy was pointing out, versus being cured, which began to feel like the exact same thing to me. So the idea of harm became like this bridge between both my experience of um, being cured or being treated and my experience of being sick, and it was like a way for me to understand the two things together at once. So, so yeah, I guess so. But. Uh, for elephant skull, you said it. Um, mm-hmm. The first thing, or it was a slide in Westwood Village. Yeah, in Westwood Park. Uh, the process of how it became elephant skull, and did you did you just it just happen like? Uh, oh, so that's unfortunately that's a memoir piece. That's nonfiction. So there is actually a slide in Westwood Village that appears to me, or a sculpture perhaps. But uh, kids use it as a slide and then climb on top of it and jump off of it. And uh, and um, and so uh, you know, it looked to me like a, a large elephant's skull. And uh, and and maybe it's just a sculpture, an abstract sculpture that looked to me like a large elephant skull. And a lot of as a teenager. We would go and hang out in this park, and um, that's where kids would, you know, either get put into our gang by the various methods that I describe in the piece. <laughs> you go first. Uh, well, uh, I don't know if I have any tips really, but I will say that, like, as you can imagine, it's not that easy of a process. I think that um, it, it probably, I think for, for me, those poems got shown um, initially to very small groups, so to friends, people I really trusted. And like, in order for me to get through the process of revising and writing them, I needed to be in a pretty safe, uh, welcoming, like generous environment. Uh, I wanted real critique, and eventually I got it too. And I got it from those people too, but I think like a lot of the stuff that the material, especially when you're first writing it, it's just not ready for a big group setting where people are like, I think you should change line two to line three. And, you know, like, that's sort of not where you're at initially. At first, you're sort of like, it's, it's, I think it involves more processing than normal, I guess. And so I spent a lot of, the first time I, the first time I started workshopping those poems, I would cry when I read them. So, and um, I think it took me a while to get to the point where they became objects of study and of revision, and I didn't feel that way about them. I mean, like, I can, Sit, step back and think about them and they can make me feel something. But you have to actually get to a point with those works where they are works in progress and they're machines that you're moving parts around and making them work better. But that doesn't happen instantly. And I think it's okay to give yourself the space to work in the kind of environment that allows you to just be with them for a while and get used to them before you start, you know, tinkering with them too much. So, Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I mean, I think that... Um, uh, it's de- and definitely when they're talking about um, 
when you get feedback on you and you, you have to be like, no, the protagonist or the character yeah. as opposed. But um, and I, initially I do uh, always try to go to where the love is. And then um, when I do find myself in a workshop setting, I take what I like and I leave the rest, you know, I, and I, I allow myself to be kind of somewhere on the moon uh, in my safe spacesuit, listening to what people are saying. And I, I take it back and, and look at it with clear eyes later on. But I, I, I tend to, I like the model, the workshop model though, where I'm quiet and I can be an observer and then later on digest it. Yeah. I, I think say. it's really easy too with, with works like these to get in the position of defending what has happened as like real or true in some way and therefore like mm -hmm. unchangeable. And so it, I think she, you're right that like being in a workshop where you can just receive is probably better because, um, you don't, you don't actually want to get in the game of trying to like defend where you're coming from. You want to, you want to take what you can learn, discard the rest and, you know, just do the work. Yeah. 